This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk to Mark Hennessy of Paw. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 231 of season five of the podcast, and we are we're doing something, Jay, we've never done before. Really? You know what that What's is? That? No, I don't. What's that? We're reviewing a band who's out uh, an album by a band who we've already reviewed before. Oh, that's right. We sort of swore when we started this we wouldn't do it. We swore that we would review every band first and then yeah. go back and review a oh. second album. So we're breaking that promise. Oh, there weren't um, 230 bands in the 90s. There were there were slightly more than that. I think there's about 250. So we were we cut <laughs> okay. it. We cut it close. We almost made it. Um, <laughs> but back on episode three, we reviewed Dragline by Paw. That episode is about eight minutes long, I think. <laughs> it's um it's pretty comical yeah. actually how short it is we've and, come up with a lot more to say since then yeah we did uh, we actually and we didn't play any music during the episode so that makes it a lot shorter as well eric peterson who is a longtime fan of the podcast he suggested hey why don't you guys go back and review the second album by paw oh, we were God. like we we're like hey that's a good idea and then i as i've been doing lately decided to reach out to someone from the band and say hey do you want to come on and talk to us about about the, about the band and we'll talk about the record and all the other records and so joining us from mark where are you i'm in lawrence kansas lawrence the Can- of, State of kansas yes of course lawrence kansas the seattle of the midwest the Se- excellent mark hennessy lead singer of paw has joined us via the internet hi, hi uh, congratulations i'm so glad that you guys are breaking your promise for me <laughs> uh, it, it makes me love you just a little <laughs> awesome well so this is like uh yeah this is I, as i mentioned this is a pretty big deal for us and it's also because uh, we actually really like the first record it was an album that jay and i um it was one of those things where we you know time had passed we reviewed it in 2010 and that album came out in what 1993 sounds right so we had kind of gotten a little foggy on it after that much time had passed, seventeen years had passed. So sure. when we when we went back and reviewed it, we both um, we both really enjoyed it. So the opportunity to to review the second album and actually do this in sequence, where we did the the debut album and now we're doing the second album, um, made a lot of sense. So, but before we actually get into the record, we you know we do a little brief history of the band when we, which is usually just reading off the Wikipedia page. So this is actually a great opportunity to, to ask you some questions about the formation of Paw and sort of what was going on back in um, your hometown of it's Lawrence, right? Yes, sir. Um, what was the music scene like back in the early '90s, and what you know, in terms of bands that were either you were playing with or that were coming through town that you were seeing, or what was what was the um, I guess impetus to starting the band and then and then developing the sound from there well um i was in a band before uh grant grant asked me to sing for paw because he saw me play in my punk rock band before that king rat where i thought i was nick cave a painfully uh imitative 18 year old um at the time 
uh, I, and I don't know, maybe you've seen some of these uh, changes in your own local scene, but at the time in Lawrence, uh, open mic night at the local music bar at the time, the bottleneck, open, uh, open mic night, there were always good bands, everybody got half an hour, and it was filled up two or three months beforehand, you know, uh, I don't know if DJs killed the radio star, but um, the, the town that I grew up in, we had the outhouse, I was just saying to somebody today about, you know, getting to play with uh, white zombie there. I gave iced tea directions to the outhouse. Lawrence was um, a, a, and still is in many ways, kind of uh, an oasis for good music, you know, in between uh, what, Denver and um, uh, the, the next place to east you want to go. Uh, at the time, you say 250 bands from the 90s. I think there may have been 250 bands in, in East Lawrence. Wow. That's not true. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> but 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 everybody was in a band, and we were all in love with music. It was it. Uh, we we talked about albums and we talked about bands. They were our religion. They were our mythology. They were our our reasons. You know, and 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 uh, I, sometimes I, I work on poems um, in my head, and and uh, you know, racism is tearing our, our nation apart in many ways. So I, I, I'm kind of working on um, a poem called Better Reasons to Discriminate Against Somebody. You know, like if they read the uh, the Mona Lisa Code uh, more than once or um, if they have uh, uh, an extensive, I, I don't want to say Burt Baccarat album collection necessarily, but I think discriminating uh, people on their music collections would make more sense than on their you know sexual preference or gender or race. Sure. Um, because... We took music so seriously. Mazzy Star and Soundgarden versus uh, Katrina and the Waves and uh, Motley Crue. You know, the, it didn't matter if it was country or beautiful or heavy. We were we were music snobs. There was good music and bad music. Um, and that was kind of how you woke up and you, <laughs> you thought about it and you went to bed thinking about it some more. Well, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, those various bands in listening to going back, listening to Dragline again and then and then listening to this record. There's a weird crossroads of influences, it seems like that. I don't know of any other band from the 90s that has the same sounds that you guys are utilizing. You know, on, on one song, it'll sound like a really he heavy like Tad or Helmet or something like that. And then the next track, there'll be this twang that is completely foreign to anybody except for like, say, you know what Jeff Tweedy and, and Jay Farrar were doing with uncle Tupelo. But that was even, you know, a, a bit different in terms of yep. their influences. Yeah. Was that a, was that a conscious thing? Were you thinking like, we're going to incorporate this other sound that is not typical in, in what was going on in the early nineties or was it just sort of a natural thing like this is where we're from this is these are the, the bands that we're playing with these are the bands that are coming through town well let me respond in a couple ways and um first of all there was no irony involved it was all natural and i don't know if uh if a, if a podcast based around music and sort of uh, some stuff i've accomplished uh, musically is the the proper place to admit uh, a complete crush on lana del rey but um, if we're talking about Death to Traitors, um, Sweet Sally Brown, if you listen to carefully to the beginning of that song, 
there's a voice message, uh, voice message from Sophie B. Hawkins to me on there because we had the same manager briefly, and I was in, I was in love with her because, um, damn, I wish I was your lover. to warm up to um you know tori amos or uh sophie b hawkins uh and grant would be warming up had heavy riffs to uh to uh the allman brothers you know um we 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 just we we loved what we loved and we weren't too shy about trying to hide what those influences were we were we were sort of rough and and uh sometimes ugly about the way that we did it uh, but it wasn't engineered. It was it was passionate. And there's a difference. Can you walk us through, you know, in the internet history of the band? It's it's sort of a one line sentence that some <laughs> some demos got you guys into like a bidding war situation as quote unquote the next Nirvana, which I think is a tag that was applied to you know forty or fifty bands uh, around sure. around sure. ninety two ninety three. But can you actually walk us through that process of like what happened with those demos and how you ended up getting signed to AM? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and there's there's so much there's so much good stuff in it too, man. Like I want to tell you, uh, but I, I can't I can't go off and um, to the Kathleen Hanna story uh, just yet. But we were a band and we were serious about being a band. We didn't care about anything else. We just wanted to play. So since we we, we recorded, um, I mean, we practiced above an auto detailing place by the train tracks in Lawrence. And at some point in time, we knew we wanted to record some songs. Uh, and we, uh, we were like, where would we go to record? There was no place good in town. And um, Eight Way Santa, you brought up Tad. Eight Way Santa had just come out. And the drums on that album, I still listen to that album to this day. It's so good. It's such good heavy rock. Um, I love Tad Doyle. Those that that and Eight Way Sand is my favorite album. It was recorded at Smart Studios, which is why we asked if they had space for us. After we went up there and recorded a seven song demo, that's when and we didn't work with Butch Vig. We worked with Doug Olson, who is an awesome, awesome engineer. But Butch Vig was working on um, House of Pain at the time and uh, halfway working with Garbage. 
and uh, recording for Nirvana. And so that, although that happened after we, we, we did our demo there, people associated Nirvana's success to some degree with Butch Fig, what else was in the studio. Uh, so Nirvana's success was direct, direct, and the fact that it was uh, Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, that was the connection for Paw to be what was in the bidding war. I got to have lunch with everybody. We had lunch with AM and Geffen and uh, Warner Brothers. And I thought AR meant at a restaurant because that's what, that's what we did for them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really the studio that, that made the connection happen? It was, it was Nirvana that made it happen. Yeah. Nirvana had, and, and uh, for, for better or for worse, never mind sound. Is is as much about Butch Vig as it is uh, about about Kurt and Nirvana's. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to know the studio that it came from, and uh, and that was the connection for us. Uh, we people, <laughs> the industry was looking for the next Nirvana, and that's why there's fifty or sixty of us, I guess. In terms of um, the first record, that got. Pretty. I mean, they they pushed that record hard. I mean, I remember seeing it on Headbangers Ball, which is kind of funny now thinking that that was on Headbangers Ball. And what yeah, other? Did you see you when Grant and I hosted with Ricky Rackman. No, no, I haven't seen that yet. Oh yeah, wow, man. Yeah, that was that was uh, funny and weird. But we got to host Headbangers Ball, co-host, or you know whatever they give you seven minutes. Uh, but yeah, we were on there with Ricky Rackman, um, circa whatever ninety eight, ninety nine. I don't know. So did you guys embrace that association? I know some bands at that time think felt, I don't know, seemed to want to distance themselves from the term heavy metal or the bands that were associated with that. Were you guys cool with that? I'm still cool with heavy metal. Yeah. Uh, Judas Priest was one of my first, the first shows that I ever saw. And, um, and you talk about trends and Lawrence, like, uh, you know, the past 10 years, the past decade has easily been bluegrass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a, I'm in a band now and it's, it's sort of stoner metal. I never, I always wanted us to be, uh, <laughs> and Grant, God bless his heart. You know, we, we, we had disagreements about a lot of stuff. I always wanted us to be heavier than we were. And I guess that's because I valued heavier bands at the time. You know, I still listen to Pantera, uh, with the sense of amazement, at the fact that I get to hear those songs. Um, and, uh, Soundgarden to me is, you know, one of those bands where if you ever listen to 4th of July, you know, you say, what, what else is there to say about, <laughs> about rainy weather? <laughs> uh, and not, not to be, um, not to try to be, uh, try to put something into a summary, uh, about what, what music meant or what the bands meant, but I, I, no, I'm not embarrassed, uh, by heavy metal. I love metal, and um, it's still it's still a source of strength for kids who came from the place that I come from. That's interesting because I think the band's sound is, um, in a lot of ways, maybe what you're describing, this back and forth between kind of a heavy, a very heavy uh, sort of Sabbath at times kind of sound to almost a country or southern rock kind of yeah. thing, and that's what makes it unique. Is that something you guys battled with, or were you com- feel comfortable with the spot you had found between the two records? Well, in some ways, I think Grant's more more proud of Death to Traders, although I'm proud of it too. 
there's 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 more country influences at the time mm -hmm. and i appreciate them more now than i did at the time i really dragline was a heavy album and i wanted death to traitors to be heavier mm -hmm. um and grant was falling in love with the allman brothers i uh um and you and you 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 know you bring up sort of intention uh being in the band is always collaborative you know uh if I could have, if I could have imitated any band, um, you know, like I said, for me, the spectrum is sort of massy star, the sort of ethereal, really beautiful, delicate melodies, um, but not bland. You know, there's, there's nothing sleep was, well, it's, it's kind of sleepy, but it's not mediocre. It's not vanilla. It's, you know, uh, there's a power to the, the, the relaxed melody of massy star. And, um, I looked at Phil Anselmo like, how do I do what he does? Uh, how do I make my voice do what, what that guy does? Or uh, at Chris Cornell's, for that matter, or Lane Staley. And uh, the singer, the rock and roll singer, is one of those things that, is, that has kind of changed. But um, when, when Grant and I got together, uh, like Bill Lowe is a good example. You know, you, you bring country influences and metal influences and... Um, you just, you just you just get together with somebody you play with and you you throw the ball around and stuff comes out well now i guess you found me built your butt a couple around me have your daddy up and down me have my enemies surround me was it dumb to stand so tall was it dumb to stand at all is that what brought you here is that what draws you near that I guess I'm glad about with Death to Traders now, uh, in retrospect, that it wasn't the heavier album that I wished had followed Dragline at the time, is that uh, I was never the guitar player. I'm the, I was I, I write the lyrics, I'm the, I sing the songs, and uh, and Grant had his own, you know, he had he was wrestling with his own art. Um, he's still playing guitar, and and uh, and he and I um, still talk. Uh, so. And he's still an artist, so his journey, his journey, mine's mine, and and I painted mine a little bit heavier metal, and he painted his a little bit more country, and uh, and we're still friends. So <laughs> I don't know if that's an answer to your question or not. Yeah, totally. I think that's what again what made the band so unique, and I, I think it's interesting you sort of brought up maybe some of your local influences. Um, can you talk about kind of go back to when I'm always fascinated with singers about when when did you realize you could sing and when did you, how did you build up the confidence to do it? <laughs> uh, I you know uh, you know how I feel saying this I'll just say it and then I'll I'll whatever I sang in my church choir uh, mm -hmm. I, I went to a Croatian school. Uh, I was the Irish kid in Croatian school in, in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, St. John the Baptist, and I sang in the choir, and I had in my head from a very short period of time, you know, Handel's Messiah, because we would do it for special masses. 
was over at, at my guitar player's house an hour ago, and we were working on songs together. Uh, one of them was a version of Tracy Chapman's For You. I've been a singer my whole life, and the only time... Okay, so when I knew that I was going to tour, I went to see an opera singer, and I said, I think I'm going to lose my voice because I scream all the time. And she gave me some exercises that I still do. Uh, and then the first time they people started mixing my voice... Like anybody else, I was grossed out. I was like, that does not sound good. Uh, my voice is pretty, it's not pretty, it's pretty ugly. <laughs> mm. Although I've learned to sing pretty, um, the thing that Dragline is, is I, I think Pansy is a better song than Couldn't Know in some ways. Uh, and I was trying to crush cans in front of speakers with Pansy. Uh, and I've only recently learned how to sing pretty. Uh, or maybe been invested in singing pretty. I never needed the confidence to sing. That's my. That, you know how people have purpose. Uh, Jay Z. Jay Z says you can you can try to change who you are, but that's just um, that's just the outside layer. You were who you are before you got here, player. I'm a singer. Mm -hmm. My whole life. My whole life. Uh, and um, until I die. Do you play an instrument? I hang out with musicians so much that I'm a consummate noodler. I can I can play a little bit of piano or bass or guitar, and I'm no good at any of it. I am no gift for music. Uh, I, I pardon me. I have no gift for playing an instrument. I could I have an I, I have an ear for melody, and um, I'm a good front guy, uh, whatever that means. But um, no, I'm not a musician. Uh, I can I can play scales on a bass, and <laughs> And there have been people, artists, who were kind enough to let me play bass in their bands. <laughs> but uh, it's more embarrassing to recall than uh, thrilling in, on, on terms of my part, man. I'm not a, I'm, I'm no, I'm not a musician, no. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was curious about the songwriting process in terms of when, when we talk to someone who does play guitar and they're the front man, they're singing a lot of times, you know, they'll have like a sketched out idea of like a couple chords and then a melody and some lyrics, and then they'll bring it to the band. Or maybe there's, you know, a guitar player who's writing riffs and they're sort of adding their thing on top of that. How does that work when you have, do, are you waiting for them to write riffs and then you already have like lyrics in mind and you're just trying to find the melody for them? Or what's that process like for that? Well, with, with Paul, uh, for example, um, Jesse, I, I remember very clearly. We were in a we were in a farmhouse outside of town, and uh, my my job as a singer, and and to this day, still pretty much eighty percent of it. Although I'm with musicians now that I feel comfortable bringing just vocal lines to. My position was responsive. Why? Because um, I am an emotive singer. I'm responding to emotion and melody. Uh, and I was lucky enough to play with um, musicians who were able to sort of infuse emotion into melody, which is a, is a weird thing. You know, you, you, you ask yourself, why is that song sad or why is that song uh, amped? And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a musical correlation to between those feelings and the music being played. Um, but I was always responding, you know, and uh, in the song Jesse. Uh, you know, I can remember hearing the song. The, the, the guys pretty much had the song done before I sang over the top of it. And then I remember going outside after I sang it the first time and being surprised by what I had sung because I because I was sad about my dog. I missed, you know, 
I missed her and uh, and for for them and and still mostly my my job as a secondary musician, a lyricist, a, a singer, is responding to music. Uh, if I if I couldn't do that, uh, you know the cake collapses a little bit because uh, like home is a strange place. That song is sad. Um, and it found the right place for me. That's a song I'm proud of, um, lyrically and vocally, uh, and partially because it's because I think the subject matter fits with the song that's being played with the melody. Uh, and it's hard to say. Well, uh, you know, songs about um, suicide or loneliness uh, sound like this, and songs about birthdays and um, sunshine sound like this. But we have ideas about sad melodies and good uh, good melodies, and and you you and I share some of those. And those characteristics are, you know, I'm I'm still interested in exploring them uh, for mining them for sadness' sake, not for happiness. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up like I guess lyrical content because one of the things that Eric, who suggested the the album, he, he in his suggestion to us gave us some you know, some of his thoughts about the record. And he said um, what he really liked about it was he thinks it stands out because the lyrics, in his view, deal with a lot of male emotions and relationships. And it's not something that you hear a lot in 90s music. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's, if he's on point with that. Because when he, that sort of, you know, colored my view when I was actually listening to the record, I was sort of paying attention to that and listening for words and phrases and sentences that were informed in that same way. Um, is he, are we on the right track with that? That it, that there's a bit more of, um, I guess say a masculine lean to the, to the lyrics and the emotions involved, man, you never met such a big walking heart on as me. Of course, of course. (laughs) And, And crazy about girls and jealous about the guys, uh, that the girls that I liked, liked, um and revengeful and angry and drunk and petty and uh masculine as all hell yeah yeah unapologetically because um i think honesty is better than deceit uh for music but you know in retrospect sometimes a little bit embarrassingly adolescent (laughs) in terms of lyrical content uh i made some lyrical choices for that album that i would not today Mm -hmm. uh but uh, yeah, unapologetically masculine. What was I supposed to do? Write a, write the lyrics that a pretty girl would write or uh, an old woman would write? I was I was self-righteous, which is a bizarre thing to be. And I've outgrown it, to my credit. But yeah, no, you're not off point. Not a bit. <laughs> okay. The one difference that... Let me backtrack for a second. So when Jay and I do just like a straight up review of a record, we talk about the things that we liked, we talk about things that we didn't like, and then we sort of do an overall review and we pick our favorite songs, you know, off the record and we talk about whether it works as a whether the whole record really works together or, or maybe it should have been, you know, for in a different um, track listing, it would have worked better, something like that. We play like producer sure. 10, year, 10 or 15 years later. One of the things I noticed about this record in comparison to Dragline is how much longer it is. Not just as because it's fifteen versus twelve songs, but also the songs tend to go a little bit longer. And whereas Dragline to me was like this like burst of energy, and it was like, even though it was like forty forty five minutes long, something like that, it seems to go very quickly. Whereas this record, 
I found myself like this one staying with it was more of a challenge because of the length of it. And I think because I, I was caught off guard, there's not a lot of slow stuff on the first record. Right. Um, and this one varies in tempo from song to song. So like there's these the peaks and peaks yeah. and valleys and peaks and valleys throughout the record. Yeah. Do you think of it as a challenging record in comparison to Dragline? I do uh, completely for lots of, for lots of reasons, man, you know, uh, and for me, ideologically, um, like a song like Peach, which is the sort of um, pretty acoustic interlude between tracks kind of song. Um, that's that's the type of thing that you wouldn't have found on on Dragline. Why? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, but Death to Traitors is much more challenging. Even a song like Death to Traitors is challenging you know because it go it just swings so wide man the door swings from badger um to uh no such luck to you know uh, i think it's a less successful album perhaps in the breadth of what we were trying to accomplish it's more ambitious so maybe that in that way it's more successful it's more successful because it's more ambitious and in some ways I completely recognize, echo, and acknowledge what you're saying about it being more of a challenge. Did the record label give you feedback on it when you when you turned it into A and M? Oh yeah, <laughs> yes they did. Yeah they did. You know, and and it's funny because uh, you know you'll be you'll be in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, holed up in the winter time in a in a in a studio, and somebody will fly out. Uh, two planes and three cars from LA and listen to a song and be like, I don't hear a Jesse. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, and my, my whole thing, not, it's not just now it was then too. It was just, who cares? I don't care. Uh, pe- <laughs> people said they liked drag line and people said they liked Death to traders. People said they didn't like drag line. Didn't like Death to traders. I, I did what I did. And, um, and when we got, we got feedback from the label for Death of Traders. A lot of it was like, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. Texas Texas is dying that you guys have gone soft. And I'm like, I don't know what to say to that. Tell Texas we were just writing a song. Huh. Because it, it, in, in a lot of ways, it's it's even heavier than Drag Line. But there's just these other songs that are, you know, showing off these broader influences. I would say that the the heavier parts are more punk ask than i think dragline which the heavier moments i think are more quintessential of grunge or you know 70s sort of sabbathy kind of metal influence so yeah i mean i think it's um it's definitely broader the second record is in terms of what's going on it, it does it has a different production style as well like it feels more i don't know it has more space i guess yeah, um, where did you guys where did you record this, and how'd you, you know, go about picking a producer and and all that? Cliff Norrell was the producer for that, and um, he came to us I think through the label, um, and uh, we recorded it in Cannon Falls, um, Cannon Falls, Minnesota, called because there was an, a leftover, not used, unfired old cannon over a very small waterfall by the bridge that went to the very small town. We recorded it there with Cliff Norell, a guy I liked working with a lot. He was um, sort of open and direct and straightforward, 
but you know the 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 old joke about the band's second album is you get your whole life for the first and then you know uh nine months for the second um and i'm still wrestling with the material there's still songs on that album that i don't like and, like yeah. uh, well for instance i think i don't like swollen uh it's uh about a time when i was with a good friend of mine and and uh it's it's you know sort of a pleasant memory for me but that song for me it, it's it shouldn't it, it shouldn't be on that album there are other songs that we had at the time that that should have been you know It's weird to have that sort of uh, that sort of perspective and retrospect. So then, after you turn it in, I, I read then that not shortly thereafter, but it, 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 some time had passed. I'm assuming that you guys did some touring and you know went out that the label um, let you guys go. Was was the relationship? Was it? A, let me put it this way: Was it a surprise, or were they already basically saying? Look, we don't want to. We're not going to continue on after this record. Like, how did that all go down with the, with the separation from A and M? Separation from A and M, man. Uh, you know, um, I think Death of Traders is uh, Dragline did okay. Death of Traders less so. Um, I, I don't remember how it went down. Uh, the the thing that was periphery to, however, the thing with A and M went down was what was going what was going on in the band. Uh, Charles, the, the bass player for Dragline, had left. We'd gone through a series of bass players to keep gigs like uh, playing with Cheap Trick at the Florida State Fair. We toured with Tesla um, and went to record uh, a, an album using hired guns for, for, for the bass player. Nothing... So the, the, whole, the whole seascape... For that album, first of all, was sort of liquid, man, uh, and and in transition, and sort of on demand, and the breakdowns that followed had more to do with the the, the relationships inside the band breaking down than with A and M not being supportive. I've seen that before. I can remember uh, playing a show at San Francisco, <coughs> where one of our A and R guys introduced me to some woman and said. This woman, you know, controls the radio for uh, the Western Seaboard. Uh, and I can remember being rude to her, you know, and saying, oh, we don't need you. We don't need anybody and music, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we were self-destructive at a level that pretty much guaranteed um, even if what had happened with a hadn't happened, we wouldn't be carrying on. Although I don't think that we're done, um, oddly enough. Uh, I, we were we were done at that time. Have you ever taken a, a road trip? Did you take a road trip when you were twenty or twenty one with some of your twenty one year old guy friends? Sure, that, absolutely. 
Yeah, did that road trip last for a year and a half? <laughs> no, no. Do you think Too... you want to get out of the van if it had? Uh, I, I yeah, pretty much after a week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we burn out. We are burn out. Um, and so you know those, uh, under supported by A and M. It's one thing. We we shot ourselves in the foot too, in a lot of ways. It's uh, and the music industry was changing too at the same time. Um, and our A and R guy, the guy that had signed Soundgarden, Police, and Extreme, uh, had swapped out his muscle car collection for a crack habit that that submarined him within you know less than a year. There was a whole bunch of stuff that happened all at the same time. Uh, I have to back up a little bit though. You said you toured with Tesla. Oh yeah, man. I knew you were going to yeah. ask about that. Okay. Yeah, I love Tesla. Uh, love is going to find a way. Great guys, great band. Uh, when I heard that they were playing at Rocklahoma, I told a, a friend of mine who was going down there to play with them to say hi. Oh, yeah, and, what uh, tour was that? <laughs> was this '95? Yeah. I, I I don't remember. I don't remember. I do remember being at Toads in New Haven. And Tesla's crowd throwing pennies and nickels at me. I get mad. But I don't remember what year it was. But those really? guys were awesome. Good guys. Yeah. And uh, we played Black Dog by Led Zeppelin together in the Wichita skating rink. And it was a, it was a, it was a, it was the last show of the tour, and it was a good way to end it. Um, I, I still remember the, the uh, Jeff, the singer, fondly. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I that. At the time, I, I I guess it may have been a strange bill, but now it makes total sense to me. Like they, <laughs> right? They're the same right. kind of hey, like. It was just it, that bill was ahead of its time. <laughs> it was but in a in a different way. They're they're always been kind of trying to blend southern rock and country with metal. Like yeah. that's been their thing. And, and, the, are, and a lot of and a lot of successful bands do that. A lot of bands yeah. that I like do that. Uh, a Coc, my favorite Coc uh, album, oh, yeah. does that. You know. Yeah, definitely. That's another. Oh. Uh, is that the one we reviewed, Tim? Um, or we did album? the one we did Deliverance. Yeah, that... that's that's the album, man. Yeah, I mean they're good, they're good, but that's got Albatross on it. Which oh, is Albatross! Of all yeah. Time. yeah, Jesus Clean My Wounds. That's a good album. And those guys, those cats in North Carolina too. I, I lived briefly on the same block as the bass player, Woody. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, good so, band, good rock and roll band. Let's dig into touring a little bit more. Uh, who who did you guys tour with, and are there any sort of dates that really stand out to you? I know you've mentioned a couple already, but are there any others? We, you know, uh, we got to tour with Tool through the UK. That was a, a singular experience, or I guess many singular experiences. Uh, we, we played with Therapy. Um, uh, through Eastern Europe, and those guys were awesome. I loved Raging Slab. We played with Monster Magnet for a long time. And you know what's funny? I can remember being like kind of a snob to Monster Magnet. And uh, like two years ago, I put on um, Super Judge or whatever. And, and I said to my, <laughs> being a young man, silly, Monster Magnet's awesome. Those guys are awesome. Uh, <laughs> and I wait any time that I spent in the, in the dressing room making fun of them, I should have been out in front headbanging because they're great. Raging Slab. We played. We we got to play a show with, you know, we played with Nirvana. We got to play with Allison Chains. Um, how did how did you guys uh, go over in Europe? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Bulgaria, we're still number five. Uh, <laughs> w- 
where, where, where in Poland? I mean, where in Europe? Uh, some places were better than others. Which were the better ones? You know, Germany, I, the, 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 the label in Germany wanted us to live there. They said, you guys can make a living as a band here in Germany. Um, yeah. And uh, Germany reminded me of Kansas. And New Zealand was the prettiest place that I ever saw. I was um, I was on the beach that uh, you guys, you, you remember the, the what is it called um, the piano with Harvey Keitel and uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is Jodie Foster in that? Maybe, yeah. Uh, I was on a beach in New Zealand. Um, it was this, this southern beach. So the next closest landmass to me was Antarctica. And I got to see that. You know, I'm a, I was a poor kid from, from KCK. Getting to, getting to see the world was not something I would have done had it not been for Paul. So all the touring was memorable in some ways. In some ways it was... It was destructive because you get on this pattern that uh, sort of like um, passed out, hungover to travel to the bar to the next day. Um, but I got to go around the world. I, I circumnavigated the globe as as a singer. Um, that was a gift. So <laughs> so I and I'm still friends with I you know I get I get e- emails or Facebook messages and, and somebody says. I from Chile, you my fave band, uh, good, you know, uh, whatever. <laughs> and it, it's, it, I'd call it more of a prickle than a stream of that type of messages, but it's, it's good. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, I've talked to other bands and heard stories from other bands who tour Europe and it's, um, in a lot of cases, it sounds like it's a lot, uh, more accommodating, <laughs> uh, maybe depending on the type of music you're playing, but, um. I'm always fascinated, or I guess I'm always wondering why more bands don't move there in terms of the business aspect of uh, rock and roll seems to be a lot more um, viable in Europe than it is here. Is that something that ever crossed your mind or? (laughs) Well, you know, back then I didn't live anywhere. So I wasn't living in Kansas anymore than I was living in Germany. I was just on my way to the next place. Yeah. Um. You know, Europe is in terms of the way that they support their bands. I don't know. Is it is it the way that they 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 feel about bands, or is it the way that they feel about uh, their own role in, as a community citizen? I remember being in um, uh, Norway. Maybe it was Oslo or um, what was the other place we played there? But Grant had a toothache. Uh, he was in town. Uh, I'm sure he didn't have more than a hundred bucks, whatever equivalent on him. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a Sunday and somehow, uh, somebody showed up at the venue and said, Oh, I know somebody. And they took, they took Grant to a dentist and, and the dentist fixed his tooth, you know, on a Sunday and didn't yeah. charge him for it. Uh, yeah. that, that's not going to happen in Kansas. Yeah. Uh, you know, so some of the ways that people did things um, seemed to to make a provide a better environment for bands, but I'm not sure it was just because they were they're music friendly. Although I do remember being um, in Christianaville, which was a crazy, crazy place, man. Uh, like sort of a Mad Max camp of orphan refugees, you know, and it's like all trash can fires and tent selling bottle cap rings and such. <laughs> yeah, but I, you probably could find that community in 
the marriage if you tried hard enough. The right pirate house might give you an experience like that. <laughs> I wanted to ask about uh, your time on, uh, is it Koch Records? Is that how oh, you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, no, it's funny, man. I didn't know, well, yeah. I, I didn't know about the Koch Brothers when we did that record. Uh, not that I would have said no. I wouldn't have. Uh, but it's funny that it was on Koch Records. I guess you did the, it was basically called a mini album, right? Or I, it's not really an EP and it's not really an album. So it's, it's sort of in between the two. Yeah, it's like a couple songs, right? Yeah. Well, there's like, there's like a, a, a short sort of intro song. And then I think there's like seven total tracks. So, um, is it under 30 minutes. Uh, that's a good question. Probably. It probably is. I wouldn't be surprised. It's, um, carry on. It's 29 minutes, so it's nice. just uh, it's just under 30. So how did that come about? Because you guys had been s- broken up at that point, right? Before that? No. <laughs> oh, man. You, uh, you guys, if this is show 231, have you ever reviewed or talked about Season to Risk? No, they're, they're one of those bands that's on the list to get to at, at some point, right but haven't we haven't gotten to them yet. Uh, well, when Grant and I broke up, <laughs> we divorced after Deaths of Traitors, and I can't remember why now, um, for no reason, I'm sure. Uh, I think Paul did a tour with a different singer, and that singer was Steve Tulipana from Season to Risk. Uh, huh. I think they tried, I think they tried to keep it going for a little bit, um, and I didn't care. <laughs> and, um... I'm not sure what what the what the year on, on that was or not, but uh, you know, in some ways, rock and roll is uh, a young man's job, and wisdom is an old man's. I look back on a lot of the stuff um, uh, about uh, about those decisions or those times, and and uh, with 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 some regret because I was and still am a moron. Um, uh, and you you let you let ego get in the way of the song that you're playing, which is a weird thing to happen if you if you love the song you're playing. But that's not an answer to your question. No, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to I'm just trying to get the timeline so that everything is for so that the lies told on Wikipedia can be you know, right. straightened well, straightened you, out. If you're if you're interested in sort of a, an accounting. Uh, you do better than to ask somebody uh, than me. Um, they just sort of pointed me in the right direction. I, I remember things <laughs> and places and times, um, but that the touring schedule and the way that we we recorded and the way that we that we kind of went after things, it was all it was all of a piece. Um, we went from uh, playing above an auto detailing shop in Lawrence to um, being picked up in a limousine at the airport in Los Angeles, to touring the world, to not speaking to one another, without there being a lot of uh, uh, peaks and valleys in between. Um, and uh, I don't remember the timeline. That's that's okay. That's understandable. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a few years. Um, on uh, <laughs> Death of Traders, there's two songs that have. A different vocal is that grant singing? yeah 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 how, how and, did that come you know, about one of, the, one of the things that's weird too is is i sing uh i, I sing in a band now and um 
it's a four piece guitar player, bass, drum, just like just like Paul. But in this band, we all sing. At the time of Paul, I think I was proprietary about singing, and I think Grant felt weird about saying, "Let's do it together." We sang a song together successfully, and that that's Texas. Yeah, uh, that's the song that we that we got right together. Seems like it's been a long time. It feels like it's been a while. I want to know. These days just roll on by. Days just roll on. They just go on by like these. Texas roads. Do you remember driving all night long? Oh, they just go. still trying to figure out you know how how the songs were and grant sang the songs that he wrote that he wanted to sing and that's the first time you guys had tried that well when yeah uh, i mean uh when you say uh you tried that i think grant already at the time was dissatisfied with me as a singer um and already wanted to do something you know, uh, like he was pulling Allman Brothers and I was pulling Tad. And um, and that's that's one of those tensions that creates, the, you know, that sort of that sort of weird thing that is inside of Death Traders. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a very weird mix between a country and a, a heavy album in a lot of ways. But instead of seeing it and instead of seeing our separate reaches as a strength uh, and trying to communicate those, we, we're just kind of trying to grab at them. And were if not private, then maybe sort of sort of proprietary about how we were doing it. If 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 mostly because they were still tender choices, you know. So it was the kind of thing where you came in the studio and and the vocal was on there, or no, you... no, 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 no. Uh, it was it was the type of thing where um, uh, Grant had broken up with his girlfriend and wanted to sing a song about her, or he wanted to have. Um, and uh an instrumental and grant for uh um for better and for worse uh was you know he was sort of the captain of paul uh i was um i i didn't have a problem with him wanting to sing a song or with instrumentals i my 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 concerns were that the ideal the ideology between what sort of album we were making was different as it turns out, you know, maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's what we accomplished. That was good. And I guess there are songs on Death to Traitors that I like better than some songs on Dragline. Uh, my favorite is Home is a Strange Place. That was when, we, you know, we sort of matured a little bit, had some time uh, apart from one another. And I feel like we were starting to figure it out. Those That, that intro song and that outro song. Uh, we recorded those in in a garage uh, in the middle of nowhere outside of um, uh, Stoll. If you are familiar with the Urge Overkill's al- uh, album Stoll, you know it's one of the seven gateways to hell. It's a, 
Um, we were the next house west on the right past the church where you could throw the bottle at and uh, it wouldn't break and the devil showed up on midnight. And we did that album in that garage. And we it seemed like we had finally kind of learned how to start to talk to one another. I think the two, the Texas, I think the, the exchange of vocals works really well. I think it's something that it amplified what's unique about the band is that it, it took that collision of musical styles and actually put it in the vocal, which is kind of interesting. Um, right. And I way agree. to just really surface it. I agree. So how come then there was no activity between 2000 and 2008? 2000 and 2008. 2008 uh, is when you guys got back together and, served, and played a couple shows. Well, it would have been because we, we weren't in the same town. I think okay. I lived in uh, New York and Poland and Raleigh for a while. I think that's why. So you, you sort of intimated earlier that that Paul maybe isn't done. I know you guys did a. I think there was a re-release earlier yeah. this year of yeah. of Dragline with some bonus material. Yeah. Is that going to happen with Death to Traders too? And is there a possibility of any new material? Uh, yes and yes. Um, Grant called me probably two weeks ago. We, we, we talked for half an hour in the parking lot of my job, and he told me that the re-release of Dragline has um, has done okay or done well, and that the guy who re-released it is in the process of trying to license Death Traders, simultaneously offering Paw money to record unheard new material. Um what I said to Grant was send me something, and he said he would. I said send me a song, and and we'll take it from there. Uh, he he was he was in Lawrence uh, up until about uh, I don't know a few years ago now, and he's in South Carolina now. Uh, but we're talking, and we're talking about we're talking about uh, recording something new together. R O C K and the A A R P, uh, Four Wheel <laughs> Walker Blowout. Uh, Drug Line 2.0 Beyond Trader Dome. This time it's possible. Uh Feel free to feel free to chime in. <laughs> Those are all good options. Um, <laughs> I'm curious about you know one of the ways that Jay and I get to listen to stuff is through like Spotify. And you know you always hear all these stories about whether or not artists actually see anything from spotify or itunes or all these sort of services uh-huh. what's your take on that is there you don't have to you... wonder they don't okay they don't uh have you ever seen um the documentary about uh lead belly um and uh his recording career no i haven't his manager made two thirds of what he made, and and uh, the, you know they got Lead Belly on tape saying thank you, sir, thank you. Uh, that has a lot to do with racism, um, and and where and when the music was was recorded, but it also has to do with this this idea about owning <laughs> owning people's ideas, which is crazy, right? Now, when it comes to digital media, my I would rather have the song out there. I hope everybody illegally streams from Pirate Island every single Paw song and plays it for their kids and their kids like it. That's my hope. I'm not expecting to see a dollar out of it. Uh, <laughs> cause I have it. Um, but I don't, you know, it to me and, and pardon, um, pardon the, the, the non ironic sentimentality, but I'm, 
I sing for one reason, and that's because I love music. I don't care what happens to the song afterwards. You can like it, you can not like it, sell it for a dollar, uh, make a sticker out of it. I don't care. I, it feels good to have out of me, and I'm glad it's out there. And it can do whatever it wants to do. Cool. That's a that's a noble sentiment. That's not something that all musicians share. So, no, you, you hear you know, you're the heard. Mona Lisa will disappear. This is this is not my own. This is this is Cormac McCarthy. Uh, there's more pictures taken today than there were in the entire span of the 18th century. It's not that the Mona Lisa uh, or Feel It Coming in the Air Tonight by Phil Collins will be a bad painting or a bad song. It's just that all the other paintings and pictures and songs and files and memes piled on top of them someday will avalanche them out of consciousness. And um, let's say that doesn't happen for 100 years or 200 years. Someday our sun will run out of fuel, supernova, and blow all the words that you and I are using back into the black hole that they came from. Literacy isn't, uh, you know, for the universe. It's all insignificant. The only thing that changes with the with the music that we choose to play and the music that we choose to listen to is us. It's really refreshing to hear because I've, I've heard a lot of um, artists from maybe the 70s or 80s who, when they're asked about new music, a common line I hear is, well, our fans don't want to hear music or people don't want to hear new music. And my immediate thought is, but don't you just have the drive to make it? Yeah, like, right? How, how can right? you be an artist and a musician and and not just have that drive to just say, you know what? I'm going to sit down to a piano and not hit a key, man. Right. <laughs> how can I not create music if I have the ability to do it? Uh, you know, especially if geez, you got nothing else going on, you know? Right. Um, maybe they have, I don't know, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't feel it anymore. But um, it's well, just refreshing. People, you know, it's, it's a, uh, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a philosopher in the sense that uh, I'm trying to tell the truth, you know? I mean, and it's it's nuanced and weird and crazy. But you got yeah, there's got to be a step backwards. And, uh, and you have, it has to acknowledge what the music industry is now. Uh, it's like trying to talk about poetry. I love poetry, but for me to pretend that I know what's going on with it would be for me to pretend that I'd read everybody who's writing it now, and I can't. Hmm. Speaking of now, you said you're in a in a new band. What's what's the name of that band? What, what what's going on? Do you guys have music out? Uh, yeah, we're on the East Lawrence time. So to say that <laughs> our uh, that our timing is glacial is to do disservice to uh, today's modern speedy glaciers. Uh, it's called Godzillionaire. We have two songs on SoundCloud, which is one less than years I think we've been together. Although, you know, we're working on an album. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I've actually sampled it. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, the one I was like, okay, I can kind of hear where the, you know, the old, not paw, but just like, you know, that sound is sort of in there and then the other one was like totally different so they were um i can't remember the titles but there if you go to if you go to the paw page on facebook there is a link to the soundcloud um songs glad to hear that um jay do you have any other questions i don't think so i think i checked everything off here i had here cool well i think i have all of my list done so so it's goodbye then uh it's it jay uh you know, this is, first of all, the first podcast I've ever done. That's the first Skype call I've ever had with a uh, non-member of my family. 
Uh, and thanks for breaking your rules for me. And thanks for um, one of the one of the weird things uh, about um, I guess uh, Dragline 2015 or Death's Traders or Paul, whatever, is there's something about you guys that that's still responding to that music. And I'm grateful for it. And uh, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for your time. I know it's on my vanity, yeah, it's my vanity. So it comes up there, it comes up every morning. So Jay, that was our interview with Mark Hennessy of Paw. Excellent interview. It was. Uh, He's the kind of guy that you just, just let him go. Yeah. He says amazing things and has incredible insights and... It was fun just kind of sit back and just just uh, see where he'd take us. His first podcast interview, I feel privileged to uh, have that, and I'm excited to hear what they're going to do. I mean, yeah. new music coming, so that's pretty awesome. Very cool. Uh, this was brought about because of a requested review by Eric Peterson. So I want to remind people, if you want to request an album for us to review, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit up our request review page. And as always, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me once again, Jason Ziak. How are you doing? Pretty good, Tim. I'm excited about this album we're going to review today because this was one that I remember seeing the album in the stacks at the radio station. I never actually listened to it. (laughs) I think that's going to be one of the constant themes of the show. Yeah, it's, it's album covers that you looked at, you went, well, I'll get to this eventually. And then, you know... Four years later. years later. Yeah. <laughs> or, or in my case, six years later. Uh, and then you just went, what was that record sounding? What did that record sound like? Oh, yeah. wow. I didn't really expect it to sound like this. So we're reviewing Paw and their album Dragline, which came out in 1993. And I'm going to give a little, little history on this. Paw was from uh, Lawrence, Kansas, which I believe is the home of... Uh, Ultimate fake book? Am I right about that? Oh wow! I, I talk about obscure. Uh, I guess they weren't a '90s band, but no, they weren't. I, their first album might have come out in the '90s. I have to check that. But yeah, Ultimate Fake Book, who we played a show with. That's the only reason I'm mentioning them. They're from Lawrence, Kansas. Formed in 1990, they put out uh, three full-length albums and then an album of like covers and B-sides. They were on A&M Records. A&M Records apparently signed every band that we're going to talk about because I think. So far, every band we've talked about uh, has been on A&M. 
That's it's probably a reason why A&M Records no longer exists. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> the reason. They got dropped after the uh, second album, of course, because that's what always happened. Either you put out one record, disappear, or you get dropped after the second. This was the first album? So this was their first album. In 98, the guitarist Grant Fitch and the drummer Peter Fitch, I think they're related, formed the band Palomar and released an album. That was the same year that the Covers and B-Sides album came out. And then the Paw back, got back together in 2000, released a album then disappeared and then in 2008 they reformed again to play some shows and then this is the random bit of information about paw in 1997 bassist charles bryan became quote the fastest human in suborbital freefall reaching 327 miles per hour what the <laughs> apparently i guess freefall is falling you know jumping out of an airplane and okay Oh, uh, there's absolutely nothing to do in Kansas, is there? No, there isn't. And it, this is the funny part. He's married and he has two kids. His kids' names, Emma and Rocket. Wow. Yeah. So I'd be best if I was the girl. Yeah, that you didn't get a cool name. Could have been named Jet or something. Subterfuge. <laughs> Subterfuge. The one quote that I saw, and this is probably a quote that comes up amongst about half the bands in the 90s. They were supposed to be, quote, the next Nirvana. Wow. Which I believe was applied to Silverchair and yeah. Bush and about 50 other bands. But this album came out in 93? Yeah, 93, which was two years after Nevermind. Nevermind right. came out in 91. Okay. And I'm going to get into that. Yeah. This was an album that I, I had listened to and then I, I gave it to you to listen to. So what was your um, what was your feedback on this? What did you think of it? Well, I have to be honest. Um, so you gave me a bunch of music at once and... Over the course of however long it's been, a month or so, um, you know, a song will pop up here and there when I'm just listening randomly to, to iTunes. Um, whenever a Paw song would pop up, I would skip it. So going into this, I wasn't optimistic that uh, I was going to like it very much. Sort of. But I was surprised. The thing that's weird about this album is you really have to, you have to listen to the songs in their entirety. You can't just sample it. You have to... You know, go through the whole album start to finish and you have to listen to every song because the thing that's interesting is it'll start off with sort of a typical you know tuned down you know muted uh, guitar riff sometimes Nirvana-ish sometimes Soundgarden-ish I was gonna say Alice in Chains there's a lot of stuff that reminded me of Dirt yeah but all of a sudden out of nowhere these like choruses happen that almost have like a southern rock sort of sound to them mm -hmm. like they'll go from this muted guitar heavy guitar punk thing or metal sounding thing all of a sudden to like picking clean acoustic guitar comes in all of this sort of you know really interesting melody going on with the guitar parts and the bass parts and then right back to the verse and it'll be this you know typical grunge style verse and i think the part the point to me of the album is you know the sort of the journey that these songs go on by song like seven or eight the formula starts to become apparent what they're doing but um up until then and there's some there's a couple tunes after that that are that are pretty good regardless but up, up until then it's really kind of an unexpected journey that you, you kind of go through you don't know what's going to happen next well um, uh, yeah musically on uh, on track three, which uh, is Jesse, and that's the that was the single. It actually yeah. got actually got played on like Headbangers Ball 
from what I read. There's like a pe- there's like a pedal steel or a lap steel during the bridge of that song. It's that totally out of nowhere. Yeah, when that came on, I was like, "What just happened?" I, I was just, at one point, I was you know I was sort of completely floored, but I was totally intrigued. Like, you know, this is so cool. I mean, that it's kind of funny that they were compared to Nirvana because I mean, Nirvana can never do those sorts of things. No, no, not at all. It, it, it's sort of it's just such a contrast between the some of the verses being so simple and boring to the choruses being really like lush and amazing it's sort of really bizarre i mean it's 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 kind of fun to listen to and there's parts of it where you're just like there's genius in here somewhere it's just i'd be i guess i'd be kind of curious to hear what some of the latter stuff sounds like to see how they develop that sound well yeah definitely i think we'll get to those those albums down the road it's funny when i was listening to this the lead singer has a very i don't want to say atypical delivery style but he's he's doing a lot of of talk singing and yelling yeah. and kind of reminded me of you know sort of a punk or hardcore style how but about thing, uh how about glenn danzig well danzig but then you know you combine those riffs and they reminded me of like helmet where they're very simple drop d you know riffing and then you've got this guy and if you read some of the lyrics the lyrics are actually kind of interesting and he, mm-hmm. it turns out that the guy actually put out a book of poetry after paul broke up it kind of reminded me of Craig Finn of the Hold Steady. Now, you know, obviously the Hold Steady are, you know, of the now, but it had this like lyrical density that a lot of bands at that time were not doing. And he, his delivery is sort of loose, like like the Hold Steady, in terms of like it almost sounds spontaneous at times, like he's kind of just making it up as it goes. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't say his voice necessarily sounds like his. But yeah, no, no, just the, the delivery and the. Um, so the, yeah, like that stream of consciousness uh, way of delivering the lyrics are definitely um, in Crank Finn territory. But yeah, Glenn Danzig is it's a funny um, comparison because there's definitely a hardcore element to the history of the band. Yeah, uh, and he kind of does like a, at times he does like a forced, low, like you know tone to his voice that sort of sounds like Danzig, and then obviously the the kind of talking style and not always being very melodic. Um, and, and I think that's the one thing that, you know, by the end of the album, you start to get wary of um, that. And boy, I, <clears throat> I made a note here that a couple of the songs, if, if just somebody else in the band could just throw in a, a backup part, a backup vocal, it would just be killer. But, you know, he doesn't double track his voice. There's no extra vocals. It's basically one vocal track, every song, you know, basically anything melodic that happens it's coming from the guitar parts, which are really pretty, pretty cool. And the, and the textures and the tones that they, they have going on with the guitars are, are really, uh, <clears throat> really well done, really interesting. But man, vocally, by the end, you're just, I just love wanting, like I, I wanted him to go somewhere else vocally that I just, I, you know, assume he can't do, but I kind of wish somebody else in the band could come in with a backup part and a chorus and it would really just be sort of the icing. Yeah, I agree on the vocal stuff. There was definitely an opportunity to do some something with a harmony or a, a doubling of the vocals that they just, you know, maybe that's something that we'll discover on the later records down the road that they actually did embrace multi-tracking the vocals. Overall, the production is not spectacular. I mean, it's pretty stock in terms of the drum sound and the and the guitar sound. Like you're mentioning with the riffs, they're pretty standard drop D, 90s grunge and, and um, hard rock riffs. The thing that sets them apart, like you mentioned, is is those choruses. Those choruses, you get to them and you're not expecting them. 
And those chimey guitars, those like clean chimey guitars, I think are what really like set them apart because they could have gone really heavy and bombastic in a lot of those choruses and they actually bring it back and sort of restrain themselves on the choruses. There's definitely a a unique dynamic to to what they're doing. They're not following the typical playbook, uh, particularly of the 90s, of, you know, quiet, loud, quiet, loud. And like, yeah, like you said, the chimey uh, guitars. And it sounds like maybe they're playing Rickenbackers. I I was meaning to look up to see what kind of guitars they're playing because it has a very distinctive sound to it when they get to those choruses. But one one thing I, I kept kept thinking of is because the you mentioned the production, which is good, but it's I would say the playing is it's a bit loose, uh, and it can't you know when you hear a band like recorded like that can't help but think about what they would sound like live, and I just kept thinking throughout the songs is you know either this band live is brilliant or just a complete and utter disaster. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I know, yeah. Like I could just see, I, I can't see it in the middle. I could just see it being one of those things like, wow, like live, it really just all comes together and it's just huge sounding or it's or just, just so falling apart and so weird. And there's so much texture in the album that they can't do live. Yeah. It yeah. just completely falls apart. Well, I think we're kind of in agreement that this is, this is something that's worth checking out that there is an unexpected element. If you just listen to these songs at the beginning, you're probably going to think that this is just a typical dumb, hard rock grunge record from the 90s. But there's actually some depth uh, to these songs that are um, worth investigating. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I, okay. I think that was that was exactly my uh, my journey to and through this album. So Awesome. All right. Well, that's it. Another episode of Dig Me Out is in the books. I want to thank Jay for helping me out on this one again and stay tuned for another episode next week of Dig Me Out. It's the doctor Visit the Dig Me Out podcast at digmeoutpodcast.blogspot.com. Join our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Dig Me Out Podcast. Yeah.